This episode contains real experiences shared through Reddit. Listener discretion is advised. This is a story that's really been bothering me lately for absolutely no reason whatsoever. A few months back, I just had this dream that brought back this memory I tried to suppress growing up. But as of recently, it's been weighing on my mind. Growing up in 2005, on the edge of the suburbs, There was a large grove of trees and hills by some railroad tracks that led to a big forest about half a mile from my house. When I was nine years old, me and my neighborhood friends would ride our bikes to the railroad tracks and walk to the forest to go explore the random pieces of furniture and junk in this peculiar forest. We'd play card games, do homework, and hang with friends out there for about an hour or two but never sat out there too long. There were small abandoned houses here and there in this forest that we stayed away from, as one neighborhood friend, Michael, told me there was a homeless man who lived in one of them. And if you saw him, run. So right off the bat, after hearing this, going near this house in the woods was as scary as could be. One chilly November afternoon, After school, I came home and dropped off my backpack at the house and immediately went to the woods. My bike was broken, so I walked. Michael had told me at school that day to meet him in this open area of the forest to play Pokemon with him. This was something we'd frequently do growing up, just to pass the time until our parents got home about 4pm, so it was nothing unusual. As I crossed the railroad tracks into the forest, I instantly felt a weird sensation. That feeling you feel when someone is watching you. I looked all around and couldn't see anyone. So I thought I was just getting spooked, as the rather overcast day was very eerie anyway. Trekking through the autumn leaves scattered across this large wooded area, I came upon the big open area where I was supposed to meet Michael. Near the area where we normally met was his notebook, open. On the page was written, Hey, I had to go back home and grab some batteries for my Game Boy. Wait for me here, I'll be back soon. Michael. So, I waited. Being alone, especially feeling like someone was watching me, made this peculiar moment very uncomfortable. However, I convinced myself I was just being a wuss and decided to wait for Michael. I sat down and began playing my Game Boy. It wasn't too long until that sensation of being watched grew into utter paranoia. I kept frantically looking up from my Game Boy and checking my watch to see how long I'd been waiting. I'd been sitting there for 30 minutes. It was beginning to get dark. 
Then, I heard some leaves crunch. I looked in the direction of the sound and briefly saw a dark hooded figure peeking from behind a few trees and hide back behind them. My skin crawled and I immediately jumped up from where I was sitting and froze in my tracks, staring. I screamed, hello, to see if anyone was there. I was quickly reminded I wasn't alone when I saw this tall, dirty-looking hooded man peek back around from the trees. He called back, Hey, buddy. I picked up Michael's notebook and ran for my life. I ran so fast I barely had time to look behind me. However, I heard leaves crunching not too far behind me. It was the man running after me. He was screaming for me to come back, and I just wanted to talk to you, I'm sorry. I began crying as I was running, thinking this was exactly how those missing kids disappear. I ran and ran and ran until I literally tripped over the railroad tracks and cut up my knees. Michael was just getting to the railroad tracks. He saw me dirty and bloody and crying hysterically, and I screamed at him to run. Without question, we ran all the way home. The hooded man was nowhere to be seen once we left the railroad tracks. I last saw him standing in the woods, defeated that he couldn't catch me or something. I don't know. I told Michael everything, and we never went back to the woods ever again. Years later, in 2016, they bulldozed the woods and built a neighborhood there. We later found out from fellow neighborhood friends who were in the area, the same thing had happened to them growing up. To this day, this is probably one of the scariest stories growing up. This happened about two summers ago, while I was house-sitting out in California for an older couple I had met at a conference for work. It had seemed like a dream scenario. The couple wanted to vacation in Hawaii for two weeks, but didn't want to board their cats, and I had been chatting with them about wanting to visit California again, where they happened to live. Because... I had loved it the first time I went, and we figured that we could just mutually benefit if I came out and house sat for them. So I flew out there, and they showed me around for a few days, taught me how to care for the cats, two of them, one that was extremely shy and I barely saw, which is important later, and their plants, gave me access to their house and cars. These people were so generous. And before I knew it, I had dropped them off at the airport and I was on my own. At first, it was really the dream vacation. I was staying in Oakland and making forays into San Fran, Sonoma, Monterey. In the mornings, I could walk out the front door and shortly be hiking the paths surrounding nearby Mount Diablo. And I was just 
ultra content with the world. I was so enamored by the area that I had actually started looking into taking some steps to relocate out there myself even. But then one day, about halfway through my final week out there, when I got back to the house, I felt really odd. Almost like I shouldn't go inside. I shook it off and went inside anyway, because it was getting late and I needed to put out dinner for the cats. Once I was inside, I forced myself to ignore how off I felt, and I made some food for myself, went to bed, and was shocked to find the shy cat hiding under my bed and crying. This was the first time I had even seen her close up. The entire time I had been there, up to that point, she had never left my host's bedroom unless she didn't realize I was around. Again, I ignored feeling weird, and just assumed she had decided I was okay and went to bed. I did start locking my bedroom door that night, though. I also remember that about halfway through that night, I thought I heard someone walking around in the gravel outside of my window. But after listening for a bit, I didn't hear anything else and went back to sleep. The day after, in the morning, I still felt a little odd, but kept up with the plans for the day. I drove out to a little music festival in Sonoma and went clothes shopping. Had an overall great day. When I got back to the house, though, I found the front door locked in a way I hadn't left it. Basically, my host never locked the deadbolt, only the lower second lock, and that's the only lock my key worked on, so I never messed with the deadbolt. But it was definitely locked. So I had to call my host and find the hide-a-key, which, to their credit, safety-wise, was buried like a whole foot underneath a bush outside, and had definitely not been unearthed for a long time. So I used that, went inside, and kept the key with me just in case it happened again. And it did. Both a different door. This time I had stepped out into the garage to get a drink, and I turned around to go back into the house. The door was shut and locked. I could use my normal key on that door, but I was still pretty bewildered. My own cats are whack, so I think in my mind, I was trying to come up with a way the cats could be locking me out of the house, but I was coming up empty. I decided I must have been misunderstanding how the locks worked, and just wrote it off and started checking and triple checking the locks when I went out of the house or into the garage. That night, when I went to bed, the really awful feeling of unease was still there. And so was the shy cat, who was clearly unhappy to see me, but also wouldn't leave my room. But again, I just locked my bedroom door and went to sleep. The next morning, I felt awful. Nausea, body ache. I had no desire to leave the house, so I decided to stay in and Netflix for a day. This vacation stay was like a full two weeks. 
so I didn't feel like I was in any hurry to get all these touristy things in anyway. But as the day went on, I started to feel that feeling of wrongness again. And it morphed into feeling incredibly watched. Around mid-afternoon, it got to the point that I was so uneasy that, even feeling awful, I decided to get out of the house for a bit to shake it off. I was getting a bit low on food, so I went to the grocery store and bought a couple food items that I didn't think would hurt my stomach. And as I started to leave the checkout, the cashier said the generic, Have a great evening. And I just instantly started crying, shocking myself and the poor cashier, because I just had this intrusive thought that said, you might be the last person to ever say that to me. When I got to my car, I was still crying and my entire body was telling me not to drive back to that house. I couldn't not though, because I didn't want to neglect the cats, so I drove back parked in the driveway and convinced myself after about half an hour to just go open the front door. Once I did that, I thought I would get over it and be able to go in and at least feed the cats. And then maybe I'd go get a hotel room after. But my body physically would not let me inside. It was like I was stuck in the entryway. I then made a deal with myself. I would yell into the house saying I had already called the police and that they were on their way. In panic logic, I figured that would make anyone in the house leave. So I faced the inside of the house, looked down the hallway towards the bedrooms, and I did just that. The second I had finished saying, they're almost here, so if you want to avoid being arrested, you need to leave now. The light in my host's room turned on and I heard someone banging. I immediately hightailed it back to the car, called the police for real, and proceeded to have a mental breakdown while talking to the dispatcher. Once they got there, they checked the house and didn't find anyone. But the double doors in the host's bedroom were left wide open. I'm so glad the cats didn't get out. And there was a pile of food wrappers in the corner behind the blinds. So... They said it looked like someone had been in there. What makes it so scary to me is that nothing was taken. And that based on the shape of the house, that would have been the perfect vantage point to see me in the living room as I stayed homesick. Also, the minute the police were gone, the shy cat was right back in my host bedroom and I didn't see her again until I left to go back home. So basically... I think the intruder had been there at least two days, forcing her to choose between two strangers and leading her to choose the one that was at least a little bit strange, me. It messed me up pretty bad, especially because they didn't catch the person and didn't seem to have any desire to look, and I still had to stay in that house for the next three days. Nothing else odd happened, and I didn't feel anything off for the rest of the time I was there, but the damage was done. I've never felt completely safe in a home without doing a complete search before bed since. But I'm extremely glad my gut spoke up. I guess I'd rather have some residual anxiety than be dead. So 
whoever was in my host's house watching me, let's please never meet. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. So I've been a career paramedic. But this happened when I had only been one for five years. This has never left me to this day. And I shit you not, it happened exactly like this. I was driving home on a rural highway one rainy afternoon. It was really pouring and traffic had slowed to about 50 miles per hour. I was following two vehicles and we rounded a bend in the road as a small sports car on the opposite side crossed the center line and hit the small SUV that was leading the three of us vehicles on my side of the road. I immediately pulled over and called 911. It was a bad one. I got out to check on everyone. There was wailing coming from the SUV on the side of the road. That's always a good thing, because people are breathing. So I went down into the field past the ditch to check on the sports car. There were two young guys in the car. The force of the impact had driven the engine to where the front passenger seat should be. The passenger was still buckled, his crumpled hand grabbing the oh shit handle overhead. The entire section of the car shoved into the back seat area. The back of the car had peeled away, as had the passenger's top of his head. 
His jawbone jutted out, raw and jagged. He was clearly deceased, but I felt for a pulse anyway, all while listening to the gasping, ragged, dragging breaths of the driver. No pulse on the passenger. I tried to figure out how to deal with the driver, but there was nothing I could do. The car had literally wrapped around him, and it would take an extraction team to get him out. Listening to his dying breathing, I apologized out loud to him that I couldn't do more. Told him I was sorry to leave him, but others needed my help too. In my heart, I knew he'd never make it, so I went to render aid where it was needed. In triage, we call this black-tagging a patient who isn't going to survive. I did what I could for the family in the SUV. Emergency medical people and fire services got to the scene and took over. The entire family had injuries, but all survived. The mother had permanent brain damage and lost an eye. But the whole day, those two guys in the red sports car stayed on my mind. That night, I was home alone and getting ready for bed with just the bedside lamp on, and I heard something in the hallway. It got louder as it came closer down the dark hallway toward my open door. It was like a thump, drag, thump, drag. I absolutely froze. A broken hand curled around the frame of the doorway. And then, that kid from the passenger seat was standing there, busted up, just like he was in the car. I'm totally serious. He looked at me, and I can't recall the exact words of what he said, but it was something along the lines of, Hey, my friend wants you to know he understands. He wants you to know he's okay. We both are. Thanks for trying. He stood there a few more seconds, just looking at me. And then he stepped back into the shadows, let go of the doorframe, and I listened to him drag back down the hallway into nothing. I turned on every damn light I could. I slept with the lights on for two full weeks. I clipped out their death notices from the paper later that week. Turns out they were both high school seniors on their way home from a wrestling tournament. Their car hydroplaned from what the investigation determined. I never would have recognized the blonde-headed kid had he come back to me as his healthy, unwrecked self. Freaked me the hell out that he came back to me busted up. I still have the newspaper clippings. I'll never forget them, nor the ghostly visit. Anyway, that's my experience. I've seen a lot of shit in my 29-year career, but nothing quite that visceral before nor since. This isn't so much one encounter, but 
it was a terrifying experience. I've never told this story to anyone besides the police, but I've been thinking a lot about it lately and only recently realized how much the whole thing really fucked me up. So here goes. I met this guy at a bar one night. We had a great time, partied all night, and eventually ended up back at my apartment. After that night, he basically lived with me instead of the hostel he was staying at. We clicked right away, and I enjoyed having him there. We dated for about three months before the first night he attacked me. It was the night of my 30th birthday. We celebrated, had a blast, and passed out at about 3 a.m. He had told me he suffered from PTSD and night terrors. He had woken up many nights freaking out. I was deeply passed out when I awoke to five quick blows to the head and face. I tried to cover myself, not knowing at all what the fuck was happening when I realized my arms were pinned at the sides. He was sitting on my chest with his legs on my arms and strangling me before I had any idea where I even was. I only remember the light fading and going black as he squeezed harder on my neck. When he let go, the blood eventually rushed back to my brain and I remember seeing him walk to the bathroom. At that point, I grabbed the dogs and ran to my car and took off. He must have passed back out. He called me hours later, completely confused as to where I went. I told him everything he had done and he promised me he didn't mean to do any of that. He would never do that on purpose and he promised me to seek help. I agreed to come back on the terms if he even scared me again, he'd be gone. Exactly one week later, again in my sleep, I woke up to him on top of me, but not doing anything. I slowly pushed him off and pretended to be getting ready for work. Out of nowhere, he jumped up and sucker punched me in the mouth. I fell onto the bed and he again tried to strangle me. This time I didn't fight and pretended to pass out. He let me go once he thought I was passed out and went to the kitchen. As soon as he left, I grabbed my dogs again and booked it to the car. I jumped in the car and locked it. This time he chased me. That was when I realized this wasn't some PTSD nightmare sleepwalking freakout. He was a psychopath. He was awake and very coherent. He was screaming that he'd burn my house down if I didn't come out, trying to break the windows to get into my car. As soon as I got the doors locked, I called the cops. He went back inside. When the cops arrived, I told them he's crazy and might try to attack them. When they went in, he was quietly waiting for them and went with them without any resistance. He knew what he did. It wasn't until the trial I found out that there was a knife in my bed. When he let go of me and went to the kitchen thinking I was passed out, he went to get a butcher's knife and left it on the bed when he chased me out. No one can prove what he was planning, but I am convinced he was going to stab me to death. He wasn't charged with anything in the end because the DA pulled some fancy lawyering maneuvering and tricked him into walking right into the arms of ICE 
as soon as he left the courthouse. I have to say that was satisfying to watch. He was deported and banned from the country. He still tries to contact me on social media by making new accounts to try to get me to help with his appeal to be allowed back. Nope. He still claims he wasn't awake for any of this. I don't know what I believe, but I know I feel a fuck of a lot safer with him on the other side of the globe. I've been having a hard time sleeping since then. I kind of brushed everything off and carried on with my life as if none of this ever happened. Thinking about it recently, I realized being attacked in your sleep and coming that close to possibly being a murder victim might cause some lasting psychological damage. I'm considering seeking help. I think maybe sharing the story for once might be a healthy first step. You've been listening to Disturbed. The Reddit stories you heard in this episode were House Sitting Gone Wrong by Blading Beastie. I Was Being Watched in the Woods as a Kid by Tie-Dye Dreamer. Paramedic Experience by Rowan0301. And I Was Almost Killed by My Ex-Boyfriend Twice by Dar Fucking Rocks. You can see photos and sources on our website, disturbedpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, help us grow by sharing the show with a friend. And make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening so you always get the newest episodes automatically. Don't forget to check out our Patreon fan club where you can support the show and get awesome perks like ad-free episodes, shoutouts, early access, and bonus episodes. You can do that over at disturbedpodcast.com slash fan club. Find us on social at Disturbed Podcast. All of the main equipment and gear used to make this episode possible is linked in the show notes. This is the equipment I personally use and highly recommend. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. <laughs>